it's pretty active. A lot of things going on. So, Luke 4, starting in verse 14. Jesus returned in the power of the Spirit to Galilee, and a report about him went out throughout all the surrounding country, and he taught in their synagogues, being glorified by all. And he came to Nazareth, where he'd been brought up, and as was his custom, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day, and he stood up to read, and the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. He unrolled the scroll and found the place where it was written, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he's anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives, recovery of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And he rolled up the scroll and gave it back to the attendant and sat down, and the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him. And he began to say to them, Today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. And all spoke well of him and marveled at the gracious words that were coming from his mouth. And they said, Is not this Joseph's son? And he said to them, Doubtless you will quote to me this proverb, Physician, heal yourself. But we've heard you did at Capernaum, do here in your hometown as well. And he said, Truly I say to you, no prophet susceptible to his hometown. But in truth I tell you, there were many widows in Israel in the days of Elijah, when the heavens were shut up for three years and six months, and a great famine came over all the land. And Elijah was sent to none of them, but only to Zarephath in the land of Sidon, to a woman who was a widow. There were also many lepers in Israel in the time of the prophet Elisha, and none of them was cleansed, only Naaman the Syrian. When they heard these things, all in the synagogue were filled with wrath. They rose up and drove him out of the town, brought him to the brow of the hill on which their town was built, so they could throw him down the hill. But passing through their midst, he went away. He then went down to Capernaum, a city in Galilee, and he was teaching them on the Sabbath. They were astonished at his teaching, for his word possessed authority. And in the synagogue there was a man who had the spirit of an unclean demon, and he cried out with a loud voice, Ha! What have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. But Jesus rebuked him, saying, Be silent and come out of him. And when the demon had thrown him down, in their midst he came out of him, having done him no harm. They were all amazed and said to one another, What is this word? For with authority and power he commands the unclean spirits, and they come out. Reports about him went out into every place in the surrounding region. He arose and left the synagogue and entered Simon's house. And Simon's mother-in-law was ill with a high fever, and they appealed to him on her behalf. And he stood over her and rebuked the fever, and it left her. And immediately she rose and began to serve them. Now when the sun was setting, all those who had any who were sick with various diseases brought them to him. He laid his hands on every one of them and healed them. Demons also came out of many, crying, You're the Son of God. But he rebuked them and would not allow them to speak, because they knew that he was the Christ. And when it was day, he departed and went into a desolate place. And the people sought him and came to him and would have kept him from leaving. But he said, I must preach the good news of the kingdom of God to other towns as well, for I was sent for this purpose. He was preaching in the synagogues of Judea. All right, I'm going to pray. Feel free to join me. Father, we pray at the end of this long, hard run of this semester that you would sharpen our minds and soften our hearts, show us wonderful things about yourself, King Jesus. We ask these things in your name. Amen. Uh, A friend of mine as a pastor told me, or shared with me, this story about a a journalist who was in a New York City nightclub. It was a jazz club. And uh, there was sort of a buzz there because people thought Wynton Marsalis was present and playing, but it was really hard to know. He was sort of hanging out in the back. And uh, Wynton Marsalis is one of the preeminent uh, jazz trumpeters in the world. And indeed it was him. He was sort of in disguise. Um, But the fourth song was a solo showcase for the trumpeter. That's when it became clear 
who was there that was in, indeed Marsalis. The song he played was a, a ballad called I Don't Stand a Ghost of a Chance with You. Uh, he played it unaccompanied. The song was written by a guy named Victor Young, uh, who wrote music back in the 1930s. This song was for a 1930s movie. And the song itself is said to uh, be able to evoke sadness out of almost any situation. And uh, during this particular performance, Marsalis was particularly attuned with the melancholy of the song. He performed the song with murmurs and sighs, at points nearly talking the words into the notes. And uh, he was reaching the climax, about to sound out every word of the phrase, the title, uh, each successive note lingering in the air just a little bit longer. I don't stand a ghost of a chance. The room was silent in anticipation when a cell phone went off. It's rapid sing-song nonsense melody. Ruining the moment, people giggled, picked up their drinks. The magic, the moment, ruined. And the writer just scrawled on a piece of uh, paper, magic, ruined. It was magical, and it was ruined. Uh, a guy I've been reading lately, a, a pastor who writes, uh, says we can look at what God did in creating the world and how he put it together and how we were supposed to be in control of it as humans. We can look at it as an orchestra, uh, wonderfully created and put together, diverse in its beauty, and we were meant to play it. And uh, in an orchestra, everyone plays by two things. Uh, two things directed. The score which the composer writes, tells you what to play, and the conductor, who tells you when to play. And the story of the Bible is that we were given a great score and uh, a good conductor, and, and we had a great thing going to play. But we decided we didn't want to listen to the conductor, and we tore up the score. And we play whatever we want. That's the story. We do whatever we want. Uh, which works sometimes, except for when we actually want harmony. We want our lives to be harmonious. And we want the world not to be a cacophonous mess, which it often is. It's a violent, cacophonous mess. And we long for harmony. And when we want harmony in our lives and in the world, we're left asking, how is it possible? How is it possible to bring sense and order to this mess? Lots of great people with great ideas and great resources have tried. And they've all failed. But Jesus claims to be one who can do it. And our text basically presents us with Jesus coming to restore order. Jesus is the king who comes to restore order. And what we see in our text is his agenda and then the advancement of his kingdom. So we're talking about those two things tonight, his agenda and the advancement of his kingdom. This text is really interesting. He's going home. Maybe it's spring break for him too. Uh, and he's going home and his reputation has preceded him. Since he's left Nazareth, whatever small town you're from that you're ashamed of, it's nothing like Nazareth. Um, Nazareth was the absolute middle of nowhere. And uh, while Jesus has been away, he's earned a bit of a reputation. It's sort of clear in this text. And he comes home. And uh, unless you're a pastor, this doesn't happen to you. But it happens to me. He goes and worships in the synagogue on Sunday and they expect him to say something which happens to me. Um, and so he stands up, they give him a scroll from Isaiah, he finds Isaiah 61, and he reads it. All this is pretty normal. He sits down, 
people expect them to speak, to preach. That's all pretty normal. And Jesus simply says, today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. Let me translate. That text is about me, and I'm here. Jesus is making the grand claim that all the promises that God made in the Old Testament about the person who was going to come to fix everything were about him. That he's now here. He is the linchpin. He is the man with the plan who's going to fix all the broken things. Restore all the broken things. And, uh, yeah, there's no sermon like that. Uh, This is unique. And what he does then is he makes this text, sort of his inauguration address. He's saying, I'm the king. And this is my agenda. Here's my plan. He does offer his credentials. It comes in verse 18. It's up there. Uh, Here are his credentials. He was not duly elected. He was divinely selected. The Spirit of the Lord's upon me. He's anointed me. God chose me. The anointing means I was divinely chosen by God and equipped for this job. And uh, God would equip kings and priests and prophets. And Jesus is sort of all those in one. But God has selected him and equipped him by his spirit to do this. To be the man capable of fulfilling these promises. And uh, then he begins to outline his agenda. He's been anointed, verse 18 tells us, to proclaim good news to the poor. He's to preach. Okay, it's... It's not much of an agenda. But he then begins to explain in the verses that follow according to Isaiah 61 what that means. He's going to preach or proclaim liberty or release of the captives, recovery of sight to the blind, freedom from those who are oppressed, and proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. This all sounds amazing. Look at it. It sounds amazing. The themes are reversal. If you're blind, you get sight. If you're locked up, you get freedom. If you're broken, you get healing. If you're oppressed, you get liberated. It's reversal. All the things that are broken or wrong get fixed. Sounds great. But uh, another word could also describe these things. And if you're cynically minded, like me, that word would be, or two words, suspiciously ambiguous. These sound like empty campaign promises. Nice words, but... What exactly are you saying you're going to do, Jesus? Set free the captives? Restore the blind? Like physically, you're actually going to restore the blind? Or you mean spiritually? And spiritually, is that the same thing? Or is this like, is it, is it real? Is it really real? Or are you just making some empty campaign promises that sound really good? Um, and I think it's pretty clear that Jesus is not out to uh, impress anyone. He's not out making false, empty promises to get people on his side because of what he does next, which is he basically offends his audience. If his goal here is to make empty campaign promises that he can't keep so people will jump on his bandwagon, he immediately blows it because he ticks them all off the very next second. Jesus knows who he has in the crowd. They're suspicious of him. They don't believe him. They're amazed by him. He speaks well. I can imagine this. You may not think I speak well. When I go to my hometown, where I'm from, People say, where are you from? And I'll say, from where am I? I'm from here. And uh, they don't believe me because I speak English now. And um, it's uh, the weird southern dialect that I grew up with. And, um, you know, I've I've become the weird one. I still like my hometown, by the way. Um, Jesus is different than they are. And it's clear. 
but they, that's not the main point. The, the main problem is uh, they think they own him. He basically knows what they're thinking. They're suspicious of him. Um, they don't believe him. They're impressed by him. But they, you know, we've heard you've done these things in Capernaum. We're not sure we believe it. We've heard it. Why don't you do those things here? And uh, you're one of ours, Jesus. Why don't you do those things you did there, here? What they have is a, a, a sense of possessivism. You're one of ours, so do all those things here for us now. Bless us now. And uh, what Jesus says to make them so angry is pretty simple. Uh, my agenda is global. My agenda is cosmic. I've come to restore all things. And uh, I, I, my scope is bigger than Nazareth. Uh, let me tell you a little bit of the history here, guys. Uh, when God sent his people in the old times, uh, sometimes when he went to fix things, he didn't fix y'all. In fact, you chased them away. They end up going out in the middle of nowhere and blessing your enemies, widows and lepers and far-off places. Um, and they're so angry by that, they want to kill him. Now, that sounds perhaps a bit rash, but you can imagine what this is like, perhaps. Uh, Hometown boy comes back, claims to have great abilities. They want you to do things. They want you to do things right there, and he says, "No, actually, you're going to reject me, and I'm going to go and share it with your enemies, and they're going to eat it up. They'll love it. They really will. It's for them, and that's what happens. And they want to kill him. So Jesus offends his audience, and uh, I think it's really helpful for us to see how we're possessive. We are possessive as well." We often, if, we, if we're Christians, if we say we're Christians, we're possessive of Jesus. We think we have a right to demand things of Him. Like, we expect Him to do things in our lives. We expect Him to fix these things, and at the same time, not fix these things. Seriously. I've got these things over here that are wrong with me, but I like these things that are wrong with me. So please don't mess with those things. I want to be able to do this, do that, and make out with that. And, but don't fix these things, because... Yeah, see what I'm saying? We're possessive. We want you to, I want you to fix me, and I want you to do this, but not that. And um, it's sort of the winter, and during the winter I listen to even more sad music than normal. Um, somehow it makes me happy. And uh, I've been listening to Father John Misty's new album, which is phenomenal. It's called I Love You, Honey Bear, um, which is really strange and ironic. He has a song on the album called Bored in the USA. He sang this... Uh, recently on uh, late night television, which was one of the gutsiest things I think I've ever seen. And uh, some of the lyrics are simply this. I'm a little bit bored in the USA. Just a little bored in the USA. Save me white Jesus. Bored in the USA. They gave me a useless education. A subprime loan on a craftsman home. Keep my prescriptions filled. Now I can't get off, but I can kind of deal. Oh, with being bored in the USA. Just a little bit bored in the USA. Save me, President Jesus. I'm bored in the USA. Uh, it sounds like an angry man, right? I think he's very prophetic. What he's done is he's looked at our culture and said, we have a bunch of people here who have very interesting problems. <laughs> Their biggest problem is they have everything and they're still miserable. And they expect Jesus to fix it. And they've made Jesus, who he doesn't believe in, their own little personal president who's just going to address their little personal problems, which is that they have everything and they're not happy and they're bored. And I think it's a pretty good picture of a lot of us, really. We think all our problems, our big problems, are grades and the drama in our lives and uh, these things. I'm not saying they're not real problems, um, trying to find a job, 
But we overlook these other problems, like that we're incredibly materialistic and selfish, narcissistic, anxious to uh, the point of almost mental illness in cases, um, unloving and unfaithful and ungiving. Like, really, it's a culture where all those things often. But we don't think of those things as problems. And uh, that's a big problem. But that's not the biggest problem. The biggest problem in this text is this. Jesus says he came to fix and address the blind, the captive, and the oppressed. Right? Came to, to help those people. There ain't no one in our culture who wants to be that. Not a single one of you wants to be classified as that. Right? Grace is given to those that are needy, and not a single one of us wants to be needy. So where does that leave us? Really? If we're not blind, oppressed, needy, where are we in this story? Well, that's Jesus' agenda. Um, it's one thing to have an agenda. It's another thing to be able to make it actually happen. And uh, words are empty promises unless you can actually fulfill them. And what we see happening next is Jesus addressing our skepticism and their skepticism. Uh, they don't necessarily believe he can do all the things he said. We don't either. Uh, another one of my favorite sad songwriters. He's not always sad. Josh Ritter. Uh, I think he sort of sums up our skepticism in one of his songs, uh, Girl in the War. The situation is these guys are conversing. This guy's got a girl in the war, whatever that means. Uh, it's a situation where he can't help someone that he loves. And uh, the song was sort of a plea, and it, and it, and it goes like this, because the keys to the kingdom got locked inside the kingdom, and the angels fly around in there, but we can't see them. i got a girl in the war. I know that they can hear me yell, but if they can't find a way to help her, they can go to hell. Uh, let me summarize what he's saying. I've got someone in life that I really care about and love. Some situation that I can't help. And so I, I desperately pray to God to do something about this. And it seems as though God, if he's powerful, if he cares, is locked inside of a box. The keys of the kingdom got locked inside the kingdom. And it can't get out. If there's power, it's locked in there and no one can get out and do anything about it. There might be angels flying around in there, but we can't see them. And that's the way we often feel. If God's at work in the world, where is it? Where's the effect? Where's the power? I don't see it. Um, when, when we're really hurting and crying out, is God really at work in this world or not? We're pretty skeptical. They're skeptical. And uh, what we see when Jesus begins to work is uh, reason to believe. The kingdom actually advances. First, he works powerfully. In verse 31, he goes out and starts speaking. And when he speaks, it's powerful. The word there is authority. And uh, all I can say is, it's the way I wish I preached all the time, but I'm not the son of God. When he spoke, people heard him speak and they thought, this man knows me, he knows my heart, and God's alive and at work here. This is different than anything we've ever heard before. And he just didn't speak like he had authority, as though he had authority. He actually has authority. He has power. And he proves that in his uh, confrontation with the evil in verses 33 and following. What happens in verse 33 through 36 is pretty troubling for many of us um, who would like to think there is no such evil in the world. Demons, devils, etc., etc. Um, and I think this is a pretty long, complicated discussion that I can't possibly address now at once. I'll, I'll say a couple things about it. One, I would say the history of the world is filled with enough evil for us to reason that there might be an evil power at work in the world. 
I think there is. I think it's the best explanation for the extent and depth of evil that we've seen um, at, at work in the world at times. Uh, secondly, what this text describes is not normative today or even in the Bible. Uh, demon-possessed people everywhere. Uh, I don't think it's normative now, here, especially not in this room. Uh, nor do I think it was normal in the Bible. I think it was episodic. It happened every now and then. But when Jesus came, like an enemy into enemy territory, the great king returning to restore everything, I think chaos ensued and uh, it just intensified. So Jesus found himself in these situations often. A couple of interesting things about this, and I'm not going to make too much about it. Uh, Jesus has authority to address this. He's come to restore everything, which means he has to address evil in the world. And he does it. And as I was reading this text, this, uh, this spirit... Verse 34 asks the question, have you come to destroy us? And you can take that us two different ways. Uh, Us being me and my buddies, my bad guy friends. Or us, me and this dude. Like the dude. Like, Jesus, maybe you're going to take me. But when you take me, you're going to take this guy out. Because he's with me now. And uh, I read that and immediately thought of The Man of Steel. Then that movie a couple years ago. Any of you see it? Anybody see Men of Steel? With the rest of America, you didn't see it. So you have these, uh, you have Superman and Zod, these two like superpowers. And uh, if you ever saw that movie, what will stick out to you for the rest of your life is the extent of destruction, right? Like, and it's sort of realistic. Like, if there ever were two superpowers, like duking it out, they would destroy everything. And that's pretty much what happens in the movie. They pretty much destroy everything. Like, the collateral damage is insane. And that's sort of what's going on here. There are two spiritual superpowers at work. You'd expect there to be collateral damage. And what happens here is Jesus has such authority that he says, No, I'm going to take you out. And that guy's fine. That's what happens. Verse 35, the guy's completely fine. And uh, we see here that Jesus is both powerful and caring. That follows in everything else that happens. Jesus is not only powerful, but he's very personal. He uh, casts out demons one moment. The next moment he's healing someone's mother-in-law. It's pretty sweet. And at the end of the day, he's probably tired. The entire city brings all their sick to him. All of them. Everybody. We're talking about hundreds of people. And the text makes a point of saying that Jesus lays his hands on them all. That's not a technique. I think that's Jesus being caring. He's like a good, loving doctor who takes time with everyone. You come with your concerns, Jeb, I listen to you and I heal you. You come with your concerns, Allison, I listen to you and I heal you. Jesus was dealing with people personally and caring empathy and compassion. It's pretty amazing. And I see here, I think we see here all that Jesus cares about. This is a great picture of it. Is he all about the spiritual or all about the physical? He's all about all of it. It's all his. When he came to restore, he came to restore everything that was his. And he restored, he came to restore everything that he made, which is both the physical and the spiritual. Uh, Jesus cares about our bodies our work, our relationships, our jobs, our health, and our relationship to God, and our forgiveness, and our guilt, and our shame. And he's working away at all those things at once. The last thing we see in our text is that uh, this kingdom is advancing powerfully and personally, but also very purposefully. Jesus could have like hunkered down right here in Capernaum. These folks love him. He's healed everybody in some family. They, he, he escapes town for a moment. They chase him out of town to find him and bring him back. 
They really like this guy. It's the opposite of his hometown. And um, he could have just stayed here and started his own little mini fiefdom and uh, maybe grown things from there. Started a college, maybe. Sent people out. I don't know. Um, and uh, instead he says, no, I've got to go. I've got to go. I must, is the word he used. I must go and preach this to other places. He has this sense of divine compulsion. God has anointed me to go and proclaim. Because what happens is this kingdom, this rule, this restoration project Jesus has begun, it advances by the message. As Jesus goes and shares the message, I'm the good king. I have the ability to forgive you. Eventually the message is, I have the ability to forgive you because I died for your sins. Trust in me. And you have this new thing that takes over in your life and begins to restore you to love God and love others well. Uh, as you share that message, people are changed one by one. And families are changed and communities are changed. That's how the kingdom advances. Uh, let's go back for a moment to that New York City Jazz Club and how the magic was ruined. Okay, cell phone ruined the magic. By the way, y'all have never done that to me one time. Students are amazing. Not once in seven years has a cell phone ever gone off in here. It's pretty awesome. You wouldn't have bet that, would you? Anyway, um, the first thing that happens after this goes on is the cell phone guy, <laughs> being clueless like he is, picks up the phone, answers it, <laughs> walks out into the hall. People can still hear him. They're laughing. Everyone's laughing at this guy. Um, and Marsalis is frozen at the microphone, and then he, uh, he begins to play the jingle from the cell phone. On the trumpet. And he plays it again a little bit louder. Then he plays it and begins to improvise. He uh, repeats it over and over, improvising the variations on the tune. He uh, Slowly the crowd begins to come back and listen. In a few minutes he resolves the improvisation. He changes a couple keys. He uh, slows the tempo down to a ballad. And he ends up exactly where he was before the cell phone went off. It's amazing. Uh, I don't stand a ghost of a chance with you. And he ends it. And uh, the, the ovation was tremendous. It was insane. Magic restored. He restored the magic. There's probably only two or three people in the whole world that could do that. It's, it's, it's insane. Only two or three people in the whole world that can do that. And that's what we have in this text. We have a world that is out of sorts. Um rife with violence, disharmony, our lives too. And we want someone to restore order. And nobody can do it, except for one man, Jesus. And he is doing it, skillfully, purposefully, sort of one note at a time, one life at a time. But he is doing it, for sure. All right, let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you for the work that you're doing. We thank you for your uh, grandiose,